Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. I love that line in that video, guaranteed completion. There are a lot of things that we do and engage in and begin, and we have no way of guaranteeing that it will be completed or that we will complete it. But in the work of God, He will complete all that He wills, all that He plans. It's Father's Day, and I love being a father, a a father to three daughters. I'm a girl dad, (laughs) and I'm good with that. The Apostle Peter was a married man. Uh, He said, Paul wrote, Peter's a married man. Do we not have this right? Uh, Paul was not a married man. They they believe that maybe he was married early on as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. But when he converted to follow Christ, it is possible, this is not in Scripture, that his wife said, check please, not for me. And he never remarried. So he lived out his ministry as as a single man. Every now and then when someone finds out, they hear, oh, you're a, you're a pastor. And then they proceed to maybe call me reverend, you know, reverend, <laughs> a holy one, or father, you know, hey, father, would you, you know, it's a little awkward. It's a little uncomfortable. Why is it that Jesus said no to that? Why is it that Jesus said, do not let anyone call you father and he's speaking of spiritual leaders or teacher. Well, this is my teacher. Maybe you've had someone at work. Oh, I found this teaching on YouTube. They're my teacher. Well, what church are you part of? Well, I'm not really part of a church, but I have a teacher on YouTube, and they have all of this insight. It's amazing. Okay. And they teach about Jesus. Does it matter? Okay, this is the title of the message today. Does how we worship God matter? Does it matter? When you think about family members, coworkers, uh, people that you know, and they say, oh, I'm a Christian, and then you listen and you hear these differences as ministers of God, does it matter how we worship God? Do you know what you believe? Do you know what the Bible says? Because it all comes back to what James said a few minutes ago, what does the Bible say? Say that with me. What does the Bible say? So once we understand that, now what does the Bible mean? That's next. And then how do I put that into application? How do I obey that? How do I submit to that? How do I do that? Often we have a propensity to begin with, well, what that means to me. Well, I feel that. Well, my experience, I don't know where it is in the Bible. I want every flare and red flag to go off in our minds. If we catch ourselves saying that, hear what that is. I am above Scripture. My experience is above Scripture. My opinion is above Scripture. That will not hold up in the day of judgment. So what does the Bible say? 
And we go in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 12 this morning. 2,500 years ago, the, this list of Ezra's comes to a close. This has been, we've been in a few uh, chapters here, a few weeks in Ezra's notes, his lists. We're going to return back to Nehemiah's account of what was happening, but this is 2,500 years ago. Is there a difference between a priest and a pastor? Today's study, I believe, will be of help to us. Everything that we need for life and godliness has been revealed in the Word of God, in the Old Testament and New Testament. And I want you to understand, when somebody says, I've heard a word from God, God told me, they're, they're saying that I should be writing another book. They're saying the Old Testament and New Testament are not enough. They're not sufficient. You need my experience. Oh, you haven't had this experience. Well, then you're down here and I'm up here. I want to explode that on Scripture so that our confidence is never in men. It's never in self. I'm not trusting in my own arm to deliver me because my arms are weak. And I really don't care how big your bicep is. It's not strong enough to deliver you from the judgment to come. But he is. God is. So what does the Bible say? What can we learn from 2,500 years ago about the priesthood? About the people of God? And ultimately about worship that is pleasing and acceptable to God? That's what we want to discover this morning. Does it matter how we worship? You say, well, I worship the right God, but do you worship him in the right way? And this worshiping community that we're seeing unfold in Jerusalem 2,500 years ago was intended, and this type of community will impact the community around them and the world. It will not just be a holy huddle, us four, no more, bar the door, we have all we need, we're the chosen ones, and whatever will be, will be. No, this community, this type of place of people that are concerned about how they worship the living God will impact the world. So the first section of our notes this morning is going to be the ministers of the temple, and you can write that in. Now we're talking about the ministers under the Old Testament, or you can also say the Old Covenant. They were to worship the right God the right way. Now, here's another, just a kind of a bottom shelf, practical way to understand the difference between Old Testament worship and New Testament worship. Old Testament worship was a worship that was come see, okay? You can put that in there, come see. It was a come see religion, come to this place. Even in the New Testament, we get to where the Ethiopian eunuch what was he doing? He went, I heard that in Jerusalem, and he went there. He made a journey there to come see what all this was about. The queen of Sheba heard about Solomon, and she went to see for herself. I want to see for myself. I want to be an eyewitness of this. God called his people out of one literal family. 
God called his people out of one literal family. This isn't figurative, okay? False systems of religion try to rework the tribes of Israel and all of this, and we can, and then they just go, they go bonkers, and people follow after when you begin to rearrange interpretation of Scripture. This is one literal family. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of everyone and everything. We were created to know him and to enjoy him forever. We're to glorify him. He has revealed himself to humanity. And so throughout the Old Testament, every you can see this unfold from Genesis all the way through to Malachi. That as God narrowed down from all of humanity, it started with Adam, first son Cain. Is this the Redeemer? Genesis 3.15 promise. The seed of the woman, is it Cain? No, he murdered Abel. So there's two sons gone, disqualified, one dead. But through Seth, the line would, would extend. Then we come down and we see a covenant made with Noah. So it narrows down, and then all this reset happened in the flood, and then through Noah's descendant, Shem, would come a redeemer. Then out of all the peoples, there's a man named Abram, and the Lord comes to Abram and makes a covenant with him, and through you, through your seed, I will bless all peoples. And then he narrows that down to Abraham had descendants, but he says, no, it's actually going to be through your son, your only son, Isaac. And from Isaac, then to Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, then his son, Levi, and we looked at this last week, Levi down to Judah. Judah, oh, he's our hero, not so much if you were paying attention last week. He was a pretty vile guy. It's all recorded in Scripture. That's another reason why I can believe the Bible. It doesn't just show the good side of people in Scripture. It shows their gnarliness, their sinfulness, their stubbornness. So then it comes through uh, Perez, born of his daughter-in-law, Judah's daughter-in-law. And down through Perez comes Aaron. Now, it's important for succession. It's important to be able to trace your roots and not just say, well, I make a claim. Can you back the claim up? Do you have the credentials? Then it comes down through that line to David. And from David, this is amazing. Matthew's account, I believe, is Joseph's lineage tracing back. But he's in a disqualified line down through Rehoboam. But in Mary's line, also extending down through a a descendant of David, is through David's son, Nathan. And you can read of that in Luke 3, Matthew 1, Luke 3. This is the account. This is the credentials. This is the resume. This is the rights. You have to prove your lineage. God called his people out of one literal family. His plan of redemption was unfolding and becoming clearer and clearer and clearer that his plan would not be stopped. He would redeem. God limited in the Old Testament those who could be leaders of worship. There was an exclusiveness to this. There was limited access Now, this is picked up throughout many false religions. 
You can't just come waltzing in and be the person who goes into the secret, you know, the top echelon of Scientology. Are you kidding me? You have to pay like we did. You have to do all the classes. You have to work your way up. You've got to go out on visitation. You've got to go do all of these things, and then maybe we'll let you in. Okay, in the priesthood of the Old Testament, it was limited. It is exclusive to who is your father. Are you part of the tribe of Levi? But even more so, are you a descendant of Aaron? So it was a limited access here. Turn with me, just hold your place there in Nehemiah. Go back with me to Exodus. In Exodus chapter 2, you say, well, what, what rights did these individuals have? You know, how, how could they be chosen by God? And but in Exodus chapter 2, it's the account of the birth of Moses. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman, okay, of the tribe of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. This is the account of Moses' birth. Later in Exodus, we find out Moses has an older sister. Moses has an older brother, and his name is Aaron. Go with me in ex further in Exodus chapter 28. In Exodus 28, we see where God exclusively chooses Aaron Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. So this is where it narrows down that the Lord tells Moses, here are my chosen priests. They're going to have access to me on behalf of the rest of my people. Well, not long after that, with this newfound position, Aaron proceeds to, when Moses goes up to the mountain, and the people say, what happened to Moses? You know, we lost Mo. He ain't coming back. Come on, make for us a new God. And they bring to him their gold and their jewelry. And voila, out comes the golden calf, Aaron says. It wasn't me. It was the people. They commit this great sin. The priests were consecrated in 29 and in 32. Already, they proved we need eventually someone better than these people. The descendants of Levi were taken by God as a tithe of Israel. They were to live, though. They weren't taken to be sacrificed, human sacrifices. They were taken to live in sacrificial service unto Yahweh. So they were not given any inheritance in the land. They had the Lord. These are the chosen people. But there was a weakness in this priesthood. All of the priests, Aaron, we've already seen his resume, failed not long after he was put into that position of serving. 
His sons, Nadab and Abihu, they offered in Leviticus 10 strange fire at the inauguration of the tabernacle. The Lord was very detailed, very precise, and they just came in and they brought worship their own way. And the Lord struck them down. And he even told Aaron, don't mourn for your boys. You're going to exalt me before all the people. And they carried the two sons out. And ministry went forward in fear and in reverence of this God who lives, creates. He is holy. He is not our buddy. He is not the man upstairs. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of everyone and everything. He is to be honored. He is to be glorified. And he is to be enjoyed. He is to be loved. He is to be worshiped. The priests were often ineffective themselves. They were often unable to keep the people from going astray, keep them on the straight and narrow, and that ended up in Jerusalem. Those two tribes we saw last week, Judah and Benjamin, being carried away into captivity by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. But what we're studying is the revival of the priesthood. This list is important in Nehemiah 12 because it's showing their credentials that this isn't something different. This isn't something made up. This isn't something just improvised. They have registration. They have a claim and they can prove we are of the tribe and we belong to Aaron. We belong to Levi. So there's a revival here of the priesthood. This is a great comeback Here we have Ezra's record. This is the evidence required for priests to serve. And the revival is being carried down and it's continued all these generations down through Aaron. So the priesthood here was formally reinstalled in Nehemiah and Ezra's day. It was legitimate and it was directly verified as legitimate sons of Aaron and sons of the tribe of Levi. Now, the map is going to come up that we looked at last week, and you possibly have this in your Bible. We're not going to zoom in on it this week, but it's interesting. There's 12 divisions, but as we saw last week, Joseph was given a double blessing. So the half-tribe of Manasseh on one side of the Jordan, the other half-tribe of Manasseh, and then there's Ephraim. Those are his two sons. So you say, wait a second, 12 tribes? There should be 12 allotments, but that's one son Joseph has He's actually got three allotments, but it's really two, Manasseh and Ephraim. Who's missing? It's Levi. If you look on the map in your Bible, there is no place for Levi. There's no land given to Levi. Levi was given cities, and they were known as the cities of refuge. And there the priests would be in those cities. And if someone, if someone was out and you're working in the field and, and the example is given, an ax head flies off your handle and the guy that you were helping, it strikes him and he, and, he, and he dies. And no one was there. You have no witnesses. Was it murder or was it an accident? And that individual that caused the death, could run to a city of refuge. And in the city of refuge, there would be a court and there would be a place because the avenger of the blood, the guy who died, his brother would be the one to carry out the vengeance so that murder would not happen in Israel. Capital punishment. 
But if that man came and he stayed in the city and he had, and, and, and it was proven before the Lord, this man is innocent, but then there would be a condition, he would have to stay in that city because someone died. It's the value of life, every life, pre-born, elderly, no matter your condition, you are valuable. And so we as believers, we contend, we, we earnestly contend for life. And when, where a culture is heavy promoting death, death of the family, death of truth, death, death of preborn children in the womb, that's a culture that is downward spiraling quickly. Well, what are we here to do? Shine the light, make a difference, have babies as husbands and wives and reproduce and raise them for the glory of God. That's what we're here to do. Nehemiah chapter 12, let's read these verses now that we have a little context of the priests and the Levites. Verse one, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. Now it's interesting, Zerubbabel is in the line of Joseph, husband to Mary came up with Zerubbabel, he rebuilt that first, or that first temple, came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua, Sarah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Malach, Hatush, Shechaniah, Rehum, Merimoth, Idu, Ginnathoi, Abijah, Mijamin, Mediah, Bilgah, Shemaiah, Jorib, Jediah, Selu, Amok, Hilkiah, Jediah. These were the chiefs of the priests and of their brothers in the days of Jeshua. And the Levites, Jeshua, Binuai, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who was with his brothers, was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. And back Bukiah and Unai and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. And Jeshua was the father of Joachim, and Joachim the father of Eliashib, and Eliashib the father of Joida, and Joida the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan the father of Jadua. And in the days of Joachim were priests, heads of fathers' houses of Sarah, Mariah, of Jeremiah, Hananiah, and of Ezra, Meshulam, uh, of Ezra, Meshulam, of Amariah, Jehoanan, of Melchi, Jonathan, of Shebaniah, Joseph, of Haram, Adna, of Meraath, Helkiah, Helkai, of Idu, Zechariah, of Ginnathon, Meshulam, of Abijah, Zikri, of Miniamin, Mediah, of Mediah, Piltai, of Bilga, Shemua, of Shemaiah, Je Jehonathan, of Jareb, Metanai, of Jedediah, Uzai, of Salai, Kelai, of Amok, Eber, of Hilkiah, Heshabiah, oh of Jediah, Nathanael, in the days of Eliashib, Joida, Johanan, and Jadua, the Levites were recorded as heads of fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius, the Persian, I believe that's Darius II, 
As for the sons of Levi, the heads, their heads of fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles until the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite to them, opposite them to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. Madaniah, Bakbakiah, Obadiah, Meshalem, Talman, and Akab were gatekeepers, standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, in the days of Nehemiah the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe. This is the word of God. Interesting, Abijah there in, in uh, verse 17, Luke 1, 5, that's the ancestor of Zechariah, of Zechariah, Elizabeth and Zechariah. So John the Baptist came of that line. So you see all this connect together. It matters about credentials. The priestly houses returned from exile. That's in verses 1 through 7 that we read. In 8 and 9, the Levitical families. And then in verses 10 and 11, you see the high priestly family. So it's tracing the line of the high priest. Fast forward 400 years when it goes in the silent years, the intertestamental period, and what's going on with the chief priests when Jesus is born, when John the Baptist comes preaching, they reject the very one they're waiting on. And they were descendants of this, of this group. They could trace their ancestry back to these individuals. In verses 12 to 26, we see the heads of the priestly families. This is the generation that came back under Zerubbabel, and this is the generation that came after. God chose not just the leaders who can lead, who can, who can go between this God who is to be feared and the rest of the people, but God also, he chose the location for worship. One place. Come see. Now, before they got to the promised land, they traveled through the wilderness. And in Exodus, the plan is revealed from God through Moses for the people that you're going to make for me a tent, a tabernacle, and I will come tabernacle with you. I will be with you in the wilderness. My presence will be with you. At the end of the book of Exodus, the presence of the Lord is there you can turn there, Exodus chapter 40. No other nation had this. No other nation had a place where the creator God would make his footstool, would be among them. You know, you remember on the playground as a kid, picking up teams, dividing up? You start scanning for whatever sport it is, who you want on your team, who you want on your side. I want the big guy. You know, I want the tallest. This nation had God, the living God. And this, this tabernacle with all of the exact instructions and in verse 34 of Exodus chapter 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. 
And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. No other nation had this. No other nation had Yahweh as their God who would protect them, defend them, guide them. It wasn't left up to just, well, where do we feel like going today? When the cloud lifted up, then the camp, break camp, everybody, fall in line. When the Lord chose the place, then they pitched camp. This is where we're staying. How do you know? Look at the fire. Look at the cloud. Moses is leading us to follow the Lord. Follow the Lord. Follow the Lord. We follow the Lord. We're protected by the Lord. Fire by night, a cloud by day. He is our protector. He is our provider. He is our God. But he's not just our God. He's using us, and they were to be a witness so that all the nations would look and say, who are those people out there, and what is that cloud, and what is that pillar of fire, and what's that tabernacle in the middle of them all about? Let us tell you. That was the plan. That was God's plan. He chose the location. His presence would choose that location in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, and then his presence in Jerusalem in the first temple, and then the rebuilt second temple. David is the one who purchased the location from a man named Ornan. He wanted to build God a temple, but the Lord rejected him. In 1 Chronicles 17, the prophet, the man of God, said, Go for it, Dave. Man, King Dave, build it. Then he left, and the Lord said, Actually, you got to go back and say, Scratch that. You can't build it. Your hands are too bloody. You're of, you're, you've, you've shed too much blood, but your son will. What, do you, what happens when you tell a king, you can't do what you want to do? The Lord told you no. Do you know what David did? He said, all right, I understand, fine. I worship the Lord, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to draw all the plans. I'm going to get it all together, and I'm going to give everything I can to this. Now, that is a heart moved by grace. 1 Chronicles 21, this is where this, this site, this, this place was purchased. After David sinned in the numbering of the people, then he went to offer a sacrifice. He went to intercede on behalf of the people. 1 Chronicle, Chronicles 21, verse 24, but the king David said to Ornan, because he said, you can just have it, I'll give it to you. And, and the animals, it's all, it's all yours, my king. But David said this, no, I will buy them. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site, for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. You know what David is saying? I can't offer the God your offering. I have to offer to God my offering. And he purchased this site. First Chronicles 29 and verse 3. Here's what David did. 
Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own, of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I, will, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the house, and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Understand what David did. David gave his king's chest. It was the treasury that he had that if he was ever run out of his kingdom, he could live the rest of his life as a king. All kings had that. It was his own backup that if I lose my kingdom, I will flee to another country, and in that country of exile, I have enough money to live as a king for the rest of my life. And when he couldn't build the temple, he said, all right, burn the ships. I'll give it all to this temple and my son will build the temple. By the way, I will not be run out of this kingdom because God is over this kingdom and he's chosen the place, so I have nothing to worry about. Think about that in light of giving to the work of God. And then David says, who's with me? Who's heart has been moved by God to willingly give to the work of God. And we can all say, isn't that amazing David did that and the people with David? You can't stop there and I can't stop there. What about my giving to the work of God? Well, my grandparents, they gave to the work of God. My parents gave to the work of God. They give, I think, every week to the Lord. But what about you? Are you moved by God to give to the work for the name and the glory of God and the good of all peoples? You can't ride on anybody else's coattails. And David says, I've been told no. All right, Lord, then I'll give everything I can give. And that comes back up. These Israelites would have known and remembered all of that by the mention of his name here that his fingerprint hundreds of years later is still on this place and the worship that happened in that place. So Solomon did build the temple and he built it right there just as he was instructed by his father. Second Chronicles 3.1, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Where? On Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Who chose the place? The Lord did. Who was submitted to the Lord? David. And David gave to the work, this is the place, son. And his son followed in his steps and built where the Lord had chosen. You say, well, where is that now? It's a place that's been leveled since AD 70, and there's an Islamic holy site right there. It's called the Dome of the Rock. Loved ones, that will not have the final word. And it won't be humans who are going to war against other people who have a different ideology that will solve this crisis. It's a crisis of belief. It's following a son of Abraham, but not following the chosen son of Abraham who came through the line to Messiah, who was crucified, buried, and rose again. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. 
God gave the liturgy for worship. So now, here we are. Zerubbabel came back. They rebuilt the temple. But the, the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple, wasn't like Solomon's temple. And I've told you this before, that the older people, when they dedicated the temple, were crying. The younger people were rejoicing, and you couldn't tell who's crying and who's rejoicing. It was mixed together because the older people had seen the first temple, and they remembered and they recognized what our sin has cost us. The younger people were simply like, whoa, we have a place to worship God. This is amazing. Hallelujah. God's glory was exalted, displayed, and feared. God gave the liturgy, that is the orderly, authentic, the meaningful worship, according to not how we feel, but according to scripture, according to truth. Singers led in the congregation. They led the congregation in worship according to scripture. Many of the Psalms, a couple of summers ago, we went through the Psalms of Ascent, and we talked about the antiphonal praise, you know, uh, give thanks to the Lord our God and King, and the other side, his love endures forever, you know? As a kid, we grew up, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And the other side, praise ye the Lord, antiphonal praise, back and forth, and one side louder than the other. It, it, it's like this. This is what was going on. Well, they didn't just come up with this. This was given to them in the scriptures. In 1 Chronicles 22, David prepared the place and he prepared his son. In 1 Chronicles 23, David organized the Levites. In 1 Chronicles 24, David organized the priests. There were 24 divisions, according to Aaron, by the Lord, and he organized them all. In Nehemiah's day, four came back. So they had to restructure. They had to rework that. They were missing. Some of the men didn't have sons. Some didn't come back. It was too, too difficult to make the journey back. I'm not going back. Why would I go back? But four groups came back. David organized the musicians in 1 Chronicles 25. David in 1 Chronicles 26 organized the gatekeepers, the treasurers, and the other officials. Do you hear all of that coming back up in Nehemiah? Gatekeepers and the priests and the Levites. All, it's, it's repeating, this was what was set in order. We're back. Lord, we're back. We're committed to do what you have told us to do. They would gather and they told Ezra, bring out the book. Scripture was read and then expounded. We've seen that. Six hours. And three hours of reading, three hours of confession. Sin was atoned for by covering it up through the blood shed through animal sacrifices. Leviticus anticipated the coming of Messiah to finish the work. And in the New Testament, we get to Hebrews, and it ties it all together. Hebrews 10, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ, when Messiah came into the world, he said, and here he's quoting the Old Testament, prophets like Isaiah and in the Psalms, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, this is Jesus. I have come to do not my will, but yours be done. Your will, O God, as it is written of me 
in this scroll of the book, the Old Testament. Fulfilled. It is finished. Have you heard someone say, you know, what kind of God is this that delights in animals being sacrificed? I couldn't worship this kind of a God. He doesn't take pleasure in the death of animals, but he delights in sinners being forgiven. He doesn't take pleasure in animals, you know, being killed, but he delights in us not dying of starvation. So he provides all good things, and we're to care, we're to be good stewards of all of his creation. But human life is the only life created in the image of God. And so what is going on in all of those animal sacrifices is that men and women and children and families would be reminded of our sin is deadly. We die because of our sin. And so when they would watch animal after animal after animal die, they would be sorrowful over their sin and also thankful that they were not being put to death right there for their sin, but this animal was a substitute for them. But it wasn't a final substitute. It was covering their sin, anticipating, waiting on Messiah to come, and he would wash away all sin because he's fully God and fully man as we've been studying in our catechism. He had to be God, 100% God. He had to be man, 100% man. And though Islam may mock that and laugh at that, you don't have a death that's worth anything if he's not human. He had to be put to death for sinners and he raised from the dead and he still bears the marks of crucifixion in his body. He didn't leave behind his identification with us as people, as humans. He laid aside his glory to take to himself. Luther said it this way, he sunk himself into our flesh. He didn't lose anything. He gained identification with us so that there's no time that we will ever pray and Jesus says, I'm not really sure what you're talking about. I guess you had to be there. He can always say, you've been forsaken, you've been abandoned, you're hurting, you're suffering, I've been there. Here's the difference. Sinless sinners. We're all sinners. We've all disobeyed. The needs of the temple and of the temple ministers were met through the offerings given. In chapter 13, spoiler, Levites have to go back to the field to work because people are already neglecting. We will not neglect the house of our God. What? There's a tournament coming up? What? Oh, you see what season it is? Oh, we got to... They're gone. And Nehemiah comes back. And who's living in the storehouse? Why is he in the heart? Well, we don't have anything to put it in anyway. And he goes off. But I'm not going to get into that. I can't, that's going to be an interesting chapter 13, all right? Just stay tuned. You got to come back for that. But I'm visiting from Alaska. Yeah, come on back. It'll be worth it. So the ministers of the temple under the old covenant were from one literal family, limited in leadership, located in God's chosen place and responsible to follow the liturgy revealed and written down from God through holy men. Now there's a picture that's gonna come up on the screen. And this is a picture that uh, June sent me this week. This is of their travels out west. I don't want you to forget this. How many of you have seen mountains like this in the west? Raise your hand, all right? I grew up in Montana. 
And here's what happens. You look and you see the first mountain range, and you're like, oh, that's not too far off. Yeah, just try hiking that first one, right? You're like, oh, I think I'm going to look at that next one just over on the other side. But from a distance, they look like how I drew mountains as a kid, like they were all one flat thing. They're not. There's a mountain range, and then you cross that mountain range, and there's another mountain range, and you cross that one, and sometimes there's another mountain range. But you couldn't see it when you were taking the picture out. It looked like one flat kid's drawing. Now, why am I showing you this? And thank you for that beautiful picture making me remember that's where I moved from. All right. Why am I showing you that picture? Because this is how prophecy works. In the Old Testament, they could see Messiah is coming, but they couldn't see the near and far fulfillment. They saw the first mountain range coming into view, but they couldn't see what we're waiting on. He came and he is coming again. So they were thinking, you're going to set up the kingdom now? You're going to set up the kingdom now? You're going to call down fire on that Samaritan village? They rejected you? Are we ready? And they saw as a flat, near and far fulfillment, Messiah. But he came the first time, not to condemn, but to be condemned. He will come again. And that moves us into ministers of God that is now applying to us ministers of the church. The ministers of the church. God's plan of salvation, his plan of revitalization has always been he will work his will through his people. The Old Testament, it was Israel. In the New Testament, we see the church. He's not finished with Israel. But here we are in this time frame, and God is operating through the bride of Christ, his church. We're ministers under the New Testament, or you can say the New Covenant. But we also are to worship the right God the right way. Old Testament, come see. New Testament, big change. Go tell. Okay, those two words are why we are now going to partner with Jordan and Emily to go to PNG. Go tell them. Go tell them of Christ. Go tell them and, and, and listen to them and learn from them and get their language so that they can hear the God who made them loves them so much that he sent his one and only son that they do not have to die and perish in their sin and we will spend and be spent so that people that we don't know will have an opportunity to hear that they are loved. It's not just good enough to stop with us. Well, you know, I know the Lord. Do you? Do we, if that's how we operate and live? Believers are all united in Christ. We're one in Christ. We're grafted in, and you might have learned the song as a child. Father Abraham had many sons, right? Many sons have Father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. So let's all praise the Lord. I'm not going to go through the whole song. That would be another six-hour sermon. We're his servants. We've been grafted in. He was a faithful high priest. The most important question for any human being is, who is your master? You have to answer that question. Who is your master? Because you have a master. 
He either pays death or he paid the penalty for your sin and he defeated death and he gives life. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, death, but radically different, the gift of God is eternal life, the gift, not a wage, you can't earn it, it's a gift. And Jesus Christ, who's your master? If you're a believer, then you're one in Christ, you're united. There aren't multiple levels. We're one, we're in the family of God. Jesus accomplished the atonement for our sins. The temple veil was, it was ripped from the top, from God to man. That, that barrier that said only the son of Aaron who was chosen for this one day, the day of atonement, and he had to come in, bells on the bottom of his garment, in case he came in defiled, he would be killed, and they would pull him out by a rope attached to his foot. There is a separation between this God and you, and you can't just waltz in there. You can't, well, when I see God, people say, I have a problem with him. You don't know this God. You can't look at his son. You can't stand under his lightning. Our roads can't survive his rains. But you're going to have a, an argument. You're going to have a discussion. It won't happen. That discussion happened on the cross if you will turn from your sin and trust in him. He was a faithful high priest. He said, it is finished. He made a way for sinners to be forgiven and to be adopted into his family. Are you a descendant of the list of this crucified Jesus? Jesus is our advocate and he is our intercessor. He lives to intercede on our behalf. He doesn't just represent us like an attorney. Okay, that's kind of loose, like, hi, how you doing? You have a good day? Sleep good last night? All right, we're going into court. Here's what I need you to do. Yes, I'm representing them. Yes, he does that, but he identifies with us. It's much more than just I represent you. He identifies, they're mine. I, am, I belong to them, we're his, his banner is over us. He associates with us. This is mine, not just, oh, I know him. Peter, I don't know him. I don't wanna be associated, with, I don't wanna identify with him. This is getting costly. This fire is getting hot. Jesus says, I know them, they're mine. I represent them, I intercede for them, I identify with them, I associate with them. We are one in Christ. We belong to him. If you have turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, nothing you can do to belong to him except surrender. Sinner, I need a savior and he'll save. Say, so I'll take you on the basis of Christ. Give me your sin, give me your shame, I give you my son and all access. Well, in Judaism, they put the veil back up. They sewed it back together. They tried to keep the priesthood going. In AD 70, it was decimated, it was done. All the records are lost, they're gone. No one can ever, so there are people that we may work with and know and they still are following after Judaism and they're waiting on Messiah to come. A Messiah can never come because all of the records are gone. 
You can't prove your legitimacy. You cannot prove your credentials. You can't prove that you're a descendant of the tribe, the chosen tribe, down through Abraham, down through Levi, down through Judah, down through David. Here are my credentials. I am Messiah. It's gone. It's lost. But not for Jesus. It's all here. This, this book is tucked in. We needed this book. They needed this book. And in 400 years, in that intertestamental period, they forgot about the one that the whole book was pointing to and preparing for. That's how deadly religion can be. Going through the motions, divorced from your heart. Well, I said the thing. I prayed the prayer. I did the water thing. I joined the church. I do all these things. Who's your master? Who owns you? Well, what about the church then? Is, are we all just like equal in tasks and responsibilities? No, the church is led by shepherd elders. But guess what? We're also sheep. We're part of, and this is a, a, a doctrine, it's the priesthood of the believer. It's a New Testament teaching. The Re Reformation brought this teaching of Scripture back into the light and back into the practice of the true church. Called and qualified men are to serve as leaders in the church, but they're to be servant leaders. They're to be leading, but not lording over the people. That was a command directly from Jesus. Pastors and elders are not priests. We do not have special access. We do not go behind the veil and no one else can. We do not have an advanced status with the Lord that no one else can have. Teaching pastors and elders simply fill an office that is highly esteemed and eternally honorable, but the office of human priests representing other people came to its end and its consummation in Jesus. Here's Here's the newsflash. No one is coming better than Jesus. Okay? No one after Jesus lived, died, and rose again is going to come and have a better resume than that. You know, who's this guy? Where did he come from? I don't know. Can anybody raise the dead, heal the blind, multiply? I mean, if this isn't Messiah. Remember the blind guy, John 9? Isn't that interesting? You've never heard of anybody being healed from uh, blindness from birth until this guy, and you don't know who he is. Are you trying to instruct us? Kick him out. His mom and dad, like, he's an adult. Ask him. Afraid they would be kicked out of the religious family. The entire New Testament and especially the book of Hebrews, is devoted to Jesus is the one who is better. His blood is better. His priesthood is better. Everything about him is better, is enough. So when Judaism put that veil back up, it came down. Emperor Constantine, he moved Christianity from being persecuted to permitted to preferred. And the question that seminary students have to often answer is, was that a good thing for the church or a bad thing for the church? When Christianity stopped being persecuted and anybody could just be a Christian because it was the cultural and the accepted thing to do, was that good for the church or was that bad for the church? Well, it was good because people stopped dying. It was bad because people could then just fake 
and just being like, what, it doesn't cost me anything. I'll, I'll, sure, I'll be a Christian. But if you know that you can pay with your life, that it may cost you everything, you don't do that unless you genuinely believe. It's worth living and worth dying for. Scripture is crystal clear on the finished work, the once and for all ministry of Jesus and the ongoing ministry of his advocacy on our behalf. Listen to Romans 6.10. For the death that he died, he died to sin. How, how much? Say it with me. Once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. For the, uh, 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul writes to Timothy, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. And who is this? It's not Father Brian. Okay, the only people who call me Father is my three girls. It's not strange. And I don't think they ever call me Father unless they're being funny or, or something. Father, you know, dramatic. There's a little bit of that in the family. Usually it's his dad. It's the man Christ Jesus. See the key of that? Man. Human. But he's God-man. So Hebrews 4, 14, since then we have, we have, not had, not will have, we have to believers a great high priest who has passed through. There's the access that one son of Aaron one day a year could pass behind the veil for everybody else and they were all waiting. He passed through the heavens. Well, who passes through there? Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet, here's the difference, yet without sin. So what does this do for us? Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The way to the Father has been opened by the Son. Son of God. Hebrews 7, 27. He, Jesus, has no need like those high priests, the one we're talking about, the one I struggle reading their names, okay, these high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since Jesus did this, read it with me, once for all. When he offered up, what did he offer up? Something else, someone else, some other animal? No, he offered up himself. Big difference, big difference. Hebrews 9, 12, he entered, read it with me, once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. There's an eternal security. If you have been redeemed, you do not have to live in fear of, oh, I wonder, wonder if I've been good enough today. I wonder if I'm keeping all the things today. If you have been adopted, he will work out sanctification in you. If you're his child, he will see to it that the work will be finished. And he did this once and for all. So no, we do not have a mass. Some of you were raised in Catholicism that restarted sacrificial system. It's called the mass, a daily offering for sin. But that goes contrary to scripture. Hebrews 9, 26, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, how? By the sacrifice of himself. 
This leads us to worship, loved ones. This, this is our God. This is what he has done to be with us and to have us with him. So pastors, we're not the high priests. We're not the special advanced, you know, good people at ordination given special powers of holiness. No, I'm just a struggling person like everybody else, but Christ lives in me, so I'm not still a sinner. If you're, I'm not, that's not my title anymore. Saint, very different. We got to think of this. I have been adopted and changed and being changed. He's changing me. So I'm a son, not a sinner anymore, but I still am incarcerated, as Paul said, in a body of sin. I was, I was listening to an old preacher this week. He said, here's the difference. It's where your position is. A sinner who has not been saved is under the domain of sin. The saint, the, son of, the child of God, made a child of God, sin is under them, annoying them. You hear the difference? I'm annoyed by sin. I'm annoyed by my selfishness. I'm annoyed by my short temper, by my lack of devotion, by all of those things. It annoys me, but I'm not under the domain and dominion of that anymore. I was like, dude, that's good. If I was on my mower, I would have written something down, but I would have wrecked, so I just listened to it. <laughs> oh, I love you people. You guys are awesome. So what are pastors then? Are we just equal? Like, I don't got to listen to him. I don't know. He encourages me to come to church. I ain't coming to church. Mm. No, we're gifts. We're gifts to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And let me tell you, it's a joy to serve you as a pastor, as an under-shepherd, as a fellow shepherd. So what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 1.24? Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you. You hear Paul saying this? We work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. You hear the love that he has for them? Do you hear that he's not like, oh, I am the great apostle Paul? You losers. You hopeless people. Do you think he felt like that? Probably. But that's not what he wrote. We work with you for your joy. So when a letter comes, and we sent some letters to some missing people this week, it's for your joy. There are people missing, absenting themselves from the fellowship of the gathering of believers. For their joy, we are writing to them as elders, saying, come back, come back to obedience. Come back and worship this king. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So what depends on us then? Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. What is our desire as elders is that letters received in this weekend or end of the week or whenever it comes in the mail is that people will hear our hearts. We are laborers for your joy and you're missing out. And if you do not listen to the word of God through humble, broken servants of God who love you, it's not gonna be good for you. Judgment day is coming and you are responsible for the covenant you made before a living God and his people. And you said, I will be part of the church. And you've been missing for months and even years. There's no joy in that isolation, loved ones. And oh, how the tempter will pull us away from the fellowship. All believers are ministers. 
Did you see the title, Ministers of God? And you're like, oh, this is going to be a message about pastor or something today. You know, Not about me. <laughs> if you're a believer, every member a minister. It's a doctrine of the priesthood of every believer. At the moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit indwells the child of God and empowers them for life and for godliness and for sanctification. It's not reserved for the elite group. It's for all children of God. So let her see the church gathers here and in many places. This is local and this is global. That we gather here and the church is gathering around the globe today or different time zones and they're worshiping. They gather and then they spread to go tell this message. We gather for instruction, singing, serving, giving, sharing, prayer, Carry out the ordinances. You can't, do, you can't do all that on your own. It's communion Sunday. 1 Corinthians 11, listen to what Paul writes. But in the, following, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. He's writing to the Corinthians. They were so messed up. Because when you, and now listen to this, come together. It is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and in I believe it in part, he knew them. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized when you, here it is again, come together. It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you, Corinthians? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, do you hear how many times he said this? It will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions. When I come. You, that connection of being together, we need this. We desperately need this. We've been through this time of COVID where people were separate and isolated, and it was not good. We're not meant to live in isolation. So we come together, and then we scatter to witness, and we share the love of Christ, and Jesus is the one. Well, why do we do this? Because he said, and he's our king, and he's our master. And in Matthew 28, he said in verse 19, go, therefore, and make disciples. Like, like gather and then get out of here and take this message with you. Well, how far do we have to go, Lord, of all nations? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you, how often? Always to the end of the age. So the church then worships in spirit and in truth. We worship in spirit and in truth. Oh, we've been sought after. We've been found by her Father in heaven. We worship in spirit and in truth. This is key to our five distinctives. This is, God, help us to be this kind of church. Look, this is what we, the Christ-centered preaching. That we worship passionately, and then we're not just talking about singing, but it includes singing. That we are fervent in prayer. I love gathering with you guys in small group and praying together. Courageous evangelism, purpose, purposeful disciple making. These are not like, well, we don't have to do that. This is, our, this is what we do. This is who we are. 
John 4, 23, Jesus said, but the hour is coming. He says this to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. If you are here worshiping him this morning, do you know who drew you, who called you, who saved you? It's the Father. He lo- to be loved by the Father We were once not a part of God's people. We were excluded. We were on the outs. And now we've been graciously brought into this family. So listen, Paul talks about it in Romans 9, 10, 11. We're grafted in. Don't be arrogant, Gentiles. You've been grafted in. The Lord cut out a section of Israel and grafted you in. Be humble, 1 Peter 2, 9, Peter He writes, he says, but you. And he's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to the church. He's talking to all these people who are not part of Aaron's line physically, the literal family, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Who's master? Who's your master? His own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, that's us, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Hallelujah. Praise his name. And so the church, as the church, we are the foundation of truth. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15, if I delay, Timothy, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, the foundation of truth. To the Ephesians, Paul says we've been predestined, we've been chosen, we've been adopted. Why? Verse 6, chapter 1, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And he carries on in Ephesians 1.13. How did he do this? How did he take us nobodies, no peoples, and make us his own? In him, verse 13, Ephesians 1, you also, when you heard the word of truth, how did, how did anybody get in him, in Christ, born again, filled with the Spirit of God? You heard the word of truth. What is the word of truth? A God, the gospel of your salvation, and then did what? And then believed in him. Well, what happened when that happened? You were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Do you hear that this is God all over our salvation? This isn't, I was, you know, on the wrong road and I, I, I you know, had some experience and then I uh, said, Jesus is the way for me. This is the Father revealed when I heard the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was convicted of my sin and I repented and he gave me all of him. The spirit of God took up residence in me and now I live to the praise of his glory and he's given me a guarantee. This isn't a, I hope we can make it. This is a guarantee. The spirit is in me. He owns me. He's changing me and I will see him one day. And so it will be with every single person who has turned from their sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. His spirit is not reserved for second level step up Christians. It's right there. You heard the gospel, you believed, sealed with the Holy Spirit. He gives you all of him. It doesn't start out by grace and end up in works. Works are always a result of grace. (sighs) We can rest in that. So this truth, 
This leads us to wonder and it leads us to worship. Old Testament, we don't, I don't really care about just learning more about the tribes and more about the thing. What's the point that God made a way for sinners bound for hell to be forgiven and adopted? In the Old Testament, hey, come see, come know this God. New Testament, he has come and he sent us on mission to go to the ends of the earth and tell people, you, a sinner, can be forgiven and adopted into the family of God. Do you know him? Who's your master? And we worship him, and today we remember. We remember him. Body broken, blood shed. Why? That's love. The supreme cost. Father, thank you. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for this word of truth, the gospel. Thank you that you do not wait on us to get our act together. And then you impart to us some level of introductory salvation, but that you take us, you meet us as we are. When we're honest, when we admit our sin, our brokenness, our fallenness, and then you give us Jesus. Oh, thank you for the Savior. We worship you. We repent of wrong thinking about you. And we ask that you will work your will in our lives and use us to impact our families, our church family, and this community and world for the honor and the glory of the Son of God. Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.